Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We begin today with Ansar Fayazuddin, a theoretical physicist and writer. He has a new article on geoengineering as an approach to mitigate the climate disaster that Ansar says offers a false solution filled with fallacies bound to create unforeseen consequences. Ansar's critique is lucid and devastating, and he argues that geoengineering technological fixes will not get us out of this mess, but will further entrench us in a deeply eco-destructive mode of life. He finds hope in the social movements demanding fundamental change, and that means not just a Green New Deal, but conceiving the possibility of the end of capitalism. And then Linda Farthing joins us for the very first time. She's a Bolivia-based journalist and writer, and she brings us an account and analysis of what has happened in the two-plus months since the coup that ousted President Evo Morales and sent him into exile. We'll get her insights on what led to the coup, who's reaped the benefits, and what has happened to the largely indigenous social movements that propelled Evo Morales to power and now face a horror show of violence. All this when Jacobin Radio returns in just a moment. I'm Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm pleased to have Ansar Fayazuddin with us, and I'll explain in a minute. But as we enter 2020, the climate crisis continues to get worse. Each new scientific report gives an even more dire picture of the crisis than the previous one, showing that it's accelerating faster than we previously believed. Now, we've just had these fires consuming large parts of Australia, radically disrupting the lives of millions. And that's perhaps the starkest case in point that we've ever experienced. And I've been wanting to do a, you know, a program on climate change for a long time and came across this incredibly uh, lucid article by Ansar Fayazuddin, and I've called him up. And he is a theoretical physicist who works at a research journal in high-energy physics. Ansar has done research at Stockholm University, Harvard, and Brandeis, and he taught at CUNY. He's written, as I said, very lucid articles in Against the Currents in a layman's perspective, uh, and that's where non-scientists can get a glimpse of his thinking. He has a new article that's coming out in the next issue of Against the Current, and it's on geoengineering, and it offers a deeper analytical view of climate change by providing a critique of geoengineering as a kind of superficial scientific alternative. Ansar Fayazuddin, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Thanks, Susie. I'm really pleased to be with you. I'm very pleased to have you. And you've just written an article on what's termed geoengineering that I just mentioned will appear in the next Against the Current, and it's called The Fallacies of Geoengineering from Climate Denialism to False Solution. Well, just the title alone seems kind of dire, and it offers this Mm -hmm. devastating critique of an all-too-popular approach to dealing with climate change. And this is what we want to discuss with you today. And, of course, I have to say that I think most people are going to find this very new and that, you know, the approach that the U.S. is following and indeed the world seems like one that everybody can get behind, which is to find fixes. So maybe we could begin with you um, defining geoengineering as an approach to climate change and compare it to the standard approach and 
define what that has been as well in terms of trying to ameliorate or reduce climate change and global warming, even if mostly honored in the breach, that is by uh, way of focusing on greenhouse gases. So if you could, Ansar, begin with geoengineering. The standard approach has always been to try to find ways of reducing greenhouse gas emissions on the one hand and finding renewable uh, sources of energy on the other. So geoengineering, uh, by contrast, um, does not address uh, the question of reducing greenhouse gases or finding other sources of energy that are renewable, but rather um, tries to sidestep this and by coming up with schemes to either reduce the uh, direct heating of the earth by the sun or by removing uh, greenhouse gases by using some technological means. So that's the basic idea behind geoengineering. Okay, so let's just go into that. So and by contrast, of course, you mentioned the, the standard approach, but would it be right to say that geoengineering offers a way to deal with climate crisis by, by controlling and limiting greenhouse gases without having to deal with, you know, the greenhouse gases uh-huh. as the issue? Can you explain? So basically there are two distinct approaches. One is uh, trying to reduce the warming of the Earth from the sun. But in the other approach, which I think you're referring to, which is to remove uh, greenhouse gases from the atmosphere, um, yeah, so that would, in principle, reduce greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. But there, all the approaches that we know of are either not at a scale that um, that is required to address climate change, And the other, the more uh, central aspect to me is the fact that they're actually eco-destructive by their very construction. And uh, they're very naive in that basically just focus on reducing the amount of greenhouse gases, but the schemes themselves can cause um, all sorts of uh, problems. And these have been well-known. Yeah, these are the unforeseen consequences or what, you know, the blowback. Exactly. One uses it very abstractly in the way that they do, which is to basically just reduce sort of the uh, carbon or, you know, these other greenhouse uh, gases. You would think that this would address the issue, but it doesn't address the use of fossil fuels and so on. And also, in addition to that, as I was saying earlier, uh, they have very eco-destructive consequences that uh, could really disrupt the ecologies, local ecologies and even global ones. Let's go back a little bit into that, because it may be that, you know, even that was difficult for people to uh, understand. And you started out by saying, you know, there's there's a way, there's two ways that, you know, that we see. And one is uh, by sun dimming, or the other one is right. by reducing greenhouse gases. And um, you didn't really say it, but you started to, I think. And that is that, you know, things like growing more trees. Um, and that right. these both have unforeseen consequences and, the, and maybe unforeseen and, and unable to foresee exactly what will happen. So um, maybe this would, um, uh, maybe you should go into a little bit first the uh, sun reducing or uh, I think you call it sun dimming and then we'll move to the forest, uh, forestation. And basically, uh, the, the sort of, there are a number of techniques that people propose, like one is um, injection of so-called aerosols into the upper atmosphere, into the stratosphere. These are sulfates, like iron sulfate, and it's supposed to basically block sunlight, basically, entering the atmosphere and being absorbed by the Earth. Then there are other schemes where you have ocean brightening, cloud brightening, also basically trying to reflect the sunlight back into into space. So these are 
direct ways of reducing the amount of uh, heat that's absorbed by the earth. Um, so that's one set of schemes. So it's essentially, as you were saying, like it's sort of like dimming the sun. So this, you know, will have all kinds of um, consequences for ecologies. And some of these we've already seen because the idea actually goes back to sort of historical data from, uh, you know, volcanic activities, which, uh, you know, have resulted in basically the introduction of aerosols into the, into the atmosphere. And, and people have observed that it has within the cooling of the earth. But there are other consequences of these aerosols as well. Like we see the disruption of uh, weather patterns uh, and climatic patterns. Like, for instance, it has consequences for the monsoon cycle and things like that. As you're speaking, I'm thinking of, let's say, when you have volcanic eruptions and you have ash everywhere. And then, of course, one of the, uh, and I'm saying this as, you know, a lay observer, (laughs) that you get that it clouded out the sun and it has the effect of some kind of global cooling that was going on at the same time as global warming. But one mitigated the other, they thought, but it did introduce particles into the atmosphere that were polluting and created other problems. And then when you say the word aerosol, and I think back to the destruction of the ozone layer that they banned aerosols for to to correct. So there's a lot right there for you to just discuss about, let's say, the nature of the kind of solutions proposed and the consequences that come from them. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. It is a form of pollution, even though it may not um, have direct consequences for the ozone layer, although some aerosols may very well. You're absolutely right. One consequence of uh, some of these aerosols is that it may result in acid rain. It will certainly also affect plant life because they will not be getting the full spectrum of uh, sunlight coming through. And there are all kinds of consequences. And then what about the the other one, which is to capture greenhouse gases by allowing, you know, what we thought of as a natural way is uh, recreating forests, isn't it? And Maybe you could explain that one and, and then what could be wrong with that. So capturing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere sounds pretty benign. There are several different schemes. So the, the one you mentioned just now of afforestation, which is basically covering uh, large tracts of the earth with uh, forests. So basically the way that you capture carbon in that scenario is that the, uh, the trees absorb carbon from the atmosphere, from the air, using photosynthesis and uh, basically then store it into the ground. The problem with that is to really have an effect um, at the level of the climate, what you have to do is to set aside very large tracts of land. And this will inevitably result in sort of uh, repurposing um, land that's being used either by uh, people living there or by natural ecologies that, you know, then you're basically just using it in this very instrumentalized way. So it has all kinds of consequences. In addition to that, there are other forms of carbon capture. For instance, now this is being used by actual fossil fuel extraction companies where they basically take carbon dioxide and other gases that are produced, you know, at coal power plants, and then they use that to extract actually more oil. It's a strange contradiction there, but because they're using that carbon and then, you know, basically turning it back into the earth, they actually get carbon credits for it because they're storing that carbon. Again, like with technologies like that, they're very hard to scale up to the level that you need, mm-hmm. um, you know, for it to have a real impact on the climate. And you've just said, Ansar, a lot of things that made me wonder whether or not 
in these proposals if there is long-term thinking about what the effects may be? Because you just talked about in order to create huge new tracts of forest that it will require um, dislocation of populations. And you can imagine... I guess, what kind of governance one, you know, would be following where that could, for the good of the planet, we're just going to have to move you somewhere else um, kind of That's logic. Right. It seems that, you know, this really begs the question, and, I, and there was another thing that you mentioned in your article as well about cultivating phytoplankton and other photosynthesizing right. species on the ocean surface that would also capture carbon for photosynthesis. Maybe you want to say a word about that, but I want to move from there to kind of create sort of like what does this these group of approaches tell us that we're able to figure out a way to ameliorate the consequences and destructive effects on the environment without changing the way that we're doing things again introducing something new to the ocean ecology and it has like consequences that we can't really predict and it's also not clear what happens to the final sort of the carbon that's absorbed by the phytoplankton because these the phytoplankton itself is uh, eaten up by other organisms in the ocean, and then where does that all end up? So anyway, it's not a, a scheme that's really been shown to be very uh, practical. There's uh, a lot of work on that. You first introduced fossil fuels and greenhouse gases, and now these various right. fixes you know, that are being pre- proposed, and they each and of themselves sound like, yeah, let's do those things. But you're saying that they haven't thought about, you know, the the, uh, the hidden consequences or the blowback on the environment and, in, and so much more, too, even on the political way that we're functioning. And it seems like, you know, this gets to, I think, the larger question that you're raising in your article on geoengineering, that it looks to tech fixes to global warming, and they each in, of themselves might be able to work, but they don't make really big changes. And those big changes are the way we organize transportation, the way we get energy, the way that we see trapping greenhouse gases. And one of the the best lines, I think, in your article is that you say this view is eco-neoliberalism, one that sees climate yes. change as a business opportunity. So, yeah. So, first of all, I think the um, these geoengineering uh, fixes don't really address the fundamental problem. That is to say, don't address the question of the fact that fossil fuels are continuing, you know, are being used. So they don't really stop that. It's basically, let's let life go on as it is. And then what we'll do is we'll go in and uh, somehow manage to adjust uh, these things, whether it's uh, absorption of solar radiation or by trapping these gases. We don't have to change anything else. So basically, it's uh, leaving everything intact. And that's why I call it eco-neoliberalism, because... But in addition to that, it actually does become a business opportunity for geoengineers. So, for instance, you see huge sort of conflicts of interest. So people who are doing research in this are also setting up companies to carry out these schemes. So you see that with solar engineering, for instance, with SRM, like you, solar radiation management. You have this uh, company, Scopex, being funded by uh, these venture capitalists. You know, so it's become not so much about saving the planet as, uh, you know, making money. Basically, it leaves intact the entirely eco-destructive system uh, that that we already have. And in addition to that, I feel like the um, focusing very particularly on carbon, we're not really looking at all the other things that go on that are sort of part and parcel, uh, this extractionist system. So you have all of these petrochemical companies, they pollute the environment, water, 
the air, everything. And like, you know, you see um, Louisiana along this uh, stretch called Cancer Alley. You have the destruction completely of these, uh, this beautiful ecology that once existed in the bayous and everything. These species have basically been decimated. So, so I, I feel that the, another aspect of uh, geoengineering is that it, its focus is so completely on one, this one thing, on greenhouse gases and, uh, you know, and global warming, rather, um, it um, doesn't really address the larger eco-destructiveness of the system that we're, we live under. And that, I think, is, you know, where we should go next, because we've seen in this last year the climate marches, the movement, Sunrise and others, that especially young people who see this as a climate emergency. And in the United States, uh, in particular, you have to counter the climate denialists who just want to plow ahead with uh, everything as it goes. But elsewhere in the world, you have, I guess, what you would term as geoengineering fixes. And so... You say that framing the problem, as scientists have a tendency to do in terms of what might seem to be the obvious and fundamental way, in other words, in terms of textbook physics, paradoxically tends to frame the problem too abstractly. And that's in terms of balancing the Earth's energy budget, specifically the imbalance between the energy from the sun and the absorbed energy. And you say that opens the door to geoengineering. But you put it beautifully when you say that it assigns causal priority to the universal laws of physics rather than the circumstances in which the laws are operating, in particular, the social arrangements of capitalism with its unceasing logic of profit making through ever increasing production and consumption. That's a quote from your article. And I guess that would be the way that we sum up because you see capitalism as the problem. Much of the youth movement marching in the streets around the world also sees capitalism as the problem. So where do we take it from there? And can you explain what your your argument is? Yes, I think the problem here is uh, capitalism and not, you know, and uh, to focus on uh, carbon is to sort of kind of look at this very rarefied quantity rather than looking at this qualitative aspects of a system of production that leads to this destruction of our environment. Second point, I, I think it is very heartening that we have uh, these uh, social movements that are emerging, whether it's the Sunrise Movement or even the attempts at uh, starting a, a Green New Deal. These are uh, very important uh, things because even though there are aspects of the Green New Deal, which one could call you know, Keynesian in some sense, they nevertheless are a breach uh, from sort of the neoliberal consensus that allows us to kind of see that there is something seriously wrong with the kind of market fundamentalism that we've lived under oh. for so long, and uh, that there's another way of thinking about this where we can regulate capital to some degree. And uh, this, I think, breach from this neoliberal consensus is going to hopefully help us find ways of outstripping sort of the limits of, you know, sort of the Keynesianism of it and try to imagine a world that actually is not capitalist and has a different set of priorities. You know, I find that very hopeful. And I wanted to just say, and you could comment on it, Ansaris, that, you know, you quote uh, Frederick Jameson, who famously said in these times that it's easier to conceive the end of the world than to conceive an end to capitalism. And I think since he wrote that, you know, maybe he would change that slightly because, you know, with Bernie Sanders and with the Democratic Socialist Movement and AOC and other things, we're seeing a lot right. of challenge to the ideas of capitalism. And you also introduced in your article uh, that we live in a world where technology produces neither joy nor 
or excitement. And, you know, this yep. was, I think, uh, Ben Barber's uh, our, uh, argument when he was talking about why, you know, opening McDonald's and introducing cell phones in the Middle East is not going to change you know, the basic nature of those societies. And so maybe you could just talk a little bit about, you know, that at the very, uh, by way of conclusion. I think that when Jameson was writing, he was in the sort of depths of uh, the neoliberal consensus. And yeah, I mean, it didn't seem like there's any way out. But I'm hoping and I feel like there are signs of uh, kind of going a little beyond that and we're finding some hope. And I think that's a, a very positive thing. Um, I wanted to actually, if, I, if you don't mind, I wanted to um, mention um, another development which that I've been involved with, which is um, the, the, uh, this organization called Science for the People. Now, Science for the People actually dates back to uh, this uh, really fertile period of uh, uh, scientists engaging um, in, in the social world, um, and so it was around from roughly 1969 to 1989, and uh, so that group has, um, has been kind of resurrected, and uh, you know, with, um, uh, and we have a um, magazine, and uh, I particularly wanted to mention that we have a collection on geoengineering, which I think your listeners would be. Um, they find interesting. It has a you know m- many scholars contributing to this um, and giving a, a, a really in depth view of um, you know what, what's uh, what the different schemes are and like you know um, and uh, most of them critique these schemes and I think you your readers will find it you know informative. I also wanted to um, just uh, a brief plug. <laughs> the name of the uh, organization is Science for the People. And you can find it at Science for the People written out um, with those spaces dot org, I believe. Uh, and uh, but you, I'm sure you can find it on online. And uh, the the name of the collection is it's 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 called the Geoengineering uh, Collection. And we also have a magazine, as I was saying, which um, the, the second issue is out now. And uh, the third one that I'm actually on the uh, editorial collective for is on the, on the People's Green New Deal, and it promises to be a, a very good issue. It's due out in uh, June of this year. Right. Great. Well, thanks for all of those things. So let me just repeat it. Scienceforthepeople.org. The collection is called Geoengineering, and there's the magazine coming out first on geoengineering, and the next issue in June is going to be on a people's Green New Deal. Thank you so much, Ansar, for always for your lucidity and, and intelligence on these matters, because it's incredibly important that we get beyond, let's say, just the abstract slogans and even the bottom line to try to understand what's really going on. I want to also let the listeners know that next issue of Against the Current will have this article by Ansar called The Fallacies of Geoengineering from Climate Denialism to False Solution. Ansar Fazadin, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure, and I just want to let people know that you're a theoretical physicist. You've worked everywhere, and you work in a research journal in high-energy physics. And go look for all of those articles and websites. Thanks again, Ansar. Thanks, Susie. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. I'm very pleased 
to have Linda Farthing with us for the very first time, and we're going to be talking about Bolivia since the coup. Whether or not we call it a coup, we're going to talk about that. There was an election in October 2019 in Bolivia, and Evo Morales won, and there were irregularities in that election and a lot of conflict that we will also go into. But on November 10th, which is just over two months ago, uh, the military suggested to Evo Morales that he resign, and he did so, and then he fled the country. Now, in the mainstream press here in the United States, we were treated to a couple of weeks of articles about what was going on and saying it wasn't a coup, whereas some people, you know, definitely said it was a coup. I think it's pretty classically a coup when the military asks you to resign, and then you resign and flee. In any case, we will be going into everything that's happened since that time, who's behind, you know, what social forces and what we can uh, see today. Linda is a writer based in Bolivia. She's been there for many years, and she's co-authored three books on Bolivia, including Evo's Bolivia, Continuity and Change. She writes for The Guardian, The Economist, Al Jazeera, America's Quarterly, The Nation, and NACLA. And I want to welcome you for the first time, Linda Farthing. Thank you, Susie. Great. So let's just begin. Can you sort of take us from what happened and why it should be called a coup or not? I guess we have to begin with November, but then we'll go back prior to that and look at the election, its irregularities, and all the rest. Yeah, okay. Well, I actually probably will start with the election. The election on October 20th, the opposition before the election created a very strong discourse in the country that there would be fraud during the election. And so uh, when the OAS, the Organization of American States, on the night of the election announced that there were irregularities, this immediately fed into a widespread sense that that for sure fraud had happened. So thousands of people took into the streets, mostly in the cities or almost exclusively in the cities, and mostly middle class um, parts of the opposition. And those protests grew over a period of weeks, and most of Evo Morales' supporters did not take to the streets during that time. And then a series of events happened very quickly before November 10th, in which the head of the uh, unelected head, I mean in terms of public office, head of the civic committee in uh, Bolivia's largest city, which is in the east, in Santa Cruz, announced that he was going to come to La Paz to demand Evo Morales' immediate resignation. Because no matter what happened, if there were going, it was going to be a second round of elections or new elections by the Constitution, Evo uh, Morales had a term that was going to end on January 22nd. But Luis Fernando Camacho from Santa Cruz, the head of the Civic Committee, said that he was going to demand Avril Morales' immediate uh, resignation and arrived, and there was a lot of theatrics. And what actually came out later was that on Friday, uh, the Friday before Abel resigned, there was a police mutiny. Um, initially, it was described that the police were tired of fighting with demonstrators and that they were sympathetic with the demonstrators' cause and had joined them. But what actually came out in the press and was in fact admitted to by um, Camacho was that he had promised the police if they sided with uh, the coup or 
or the the people trying to get rid of Abel Morales, um, that they, he would guarantee them 100% of their retirement mm. uh, earnings, 100% of their salaries when they retired, which they had not previously had. It later came out that, although the details are very unclear, something similar was done with the country's military. Um, and um, Camacho came out later and said that his father had publicly and said that his father had negotiated that, although the details of what was offered to the military have not yet come out. So by two days later or three days later after this police mutiny had begun, Abel Morales was forced to resign, and that's what happened on November 10th. And I think, and I just want to ask you this because, you know, most people now will accept that it's a coup in the sort of classic definition. The stakes of labeling it as a coup are are pretty high because it it, uh, it will confer political legitimacy on the current government or not, depending on whether you see it as a coup, I think. And I'd like to hear that. Um, but before we go into, say, what Avo had accomplished, and he had been there for, what, uh, 14, 14 years? 14 years. For, yeah, 14 yeah. years and was, you know, and, and depending on what views you take, he did a lot to raise the standard of living in the country, had a great deal of popular support, and yet you see that, you know, there was this whole period where there wasn't popular support at the end, at least from the cities. But you mentioned, you know, the OAS, the Organization of American States, and their uh, role in pronouncing and, and let's say, what, encouraging the notion, as others did, that this election had a lot of irregularities and there, there might well have been. But um, the OAS is, is sometimes considered like almost a branch of the United States State Department. And I wondered if you could just briefly, because there's a lot more to get into, talk about what, if any, role the United States had in this. Well, before the election, I mean, uh, before the election and for many years uh, with all of the U.S. governments, Abel Morales was not a popular figure um, in, internationally or in relation to the United States. I mean, he was part of the um, pink tide governments, the left-wing governments in Latin America, and his government was considered one of the more radical, where, while in actually in practical terms it was not ever terribly radical, but uh, associated with Venezuela and Cuba. So the United States had an interest, an ideological interest, if you like, uh, in seeing Morales um, removed or leave. And in the years leading up to this election, in fact, there was what can be seen of uh, U.S. support through the National Endowment uh, for Democracy Mm. to uh, opposition groups. Whether or not that any of that actually went to opposition parties through the International Republican Institute is not entirely clear at this point. But that money was definitely went to opposition groups and a great deal of support was provided to opposition groups by the National Endowment of Democracy, for Democracy, sorry. And there were also a series of leaked audio tapes, some 16 of them, that were leaked actually by a, a news source in Bolivia that had been in pretty strong opposition to the Morales government for quite some time. And the news sources documented discussions between 
the coup leaders, the people that were involved in ousting Morales, and significant and important conservative Latino leaders in the United States, like Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, Mm. uh, are the two that immediately come to mind. So... There was definitely a U.S. interest and influence in the outcome of the election. Was it determinant? I'm not sure that that's the case. I think that domestic politics played a very important role in what actually happened. But it certainly encouraged the opposition and provided them funding. I mean, and also perhaps, and maybe you could answer this, the knowledge that the U.S. would look the other way at what they were doing. And that's where I kind of want to go, uh, and that is to talk about, you know, the Añez government that came about. And what we saw here, at least, and you're, you've been there the whole time, is that for the month after, it looked like a horror show with violence descending and very traditional, sort of almost reminiscent of Chile in 1973. And before we go on to how and why the society is that polarized, they would take that step and who Janine Añez is and this sort of right-wing Christian forces that she represents. What has really happened? And uh, maybe you could just, you know, take it from there because you've been there the entire time and watched it unfold. After Agnes was, uh, you know, basically self-proclaimed herself with a Bible in her hand in front of an empty legislature because she had to be appointed by the legislature, and in fact the legislature was controlled by Evo Morales' government, the MAS, and at that point there was considerable repression against people in the MAS, in the MAS party, and a great deal of fear, and I think at the same time they also did not want to give her a quorum so she could become elected. Her party had only received four percent of the vote in the in the election i mean the election was an irregularity so it might have been more than that but probably not significantly more than that mm-hmm. um so when she took over she announced that she was going to be involved in the pacification of the country and very often she put that in very anti-indian very racist terms against highland and valley indigenous people in Bolivia, Bolivia is the most has the highest proportion of indigenous people in its population of any um, country in the Americas. So that was very significant. And at that point, also, the people who had been the supporters of the MAS or who were afraid, who may have been very critical of Evo Morales staying in power, became very concerned about the rise of racism and the return to some kind of regime that was really prior to the kinds of changes that Evo Morales' government had brought about. So there was a great deal of concern about repression, and the marches were organized, and she, Agnes then announced that she would put the military on the streets in order to back the police. The police apparently had asked for military backup. Now, they are historically have been enemies, the police and the military, to the mm. point in which they've actually had confrontations in which they've killed each other. Wow. I think the police got the, got the short end of the stick on that one, probably. But um, So then, all of a sudden, there were military in the street, and she gave the, the military complete complete uh, impunity to, quote-unquote, 
pacify the country. This resulted in two massacres, one in La Paz in El Alto, which is the uh, largely uh, indigenous city that sits above the city of La Paz, and one uh, against coca growers on the outskirts of Cochabamba. Mm. And between those two massacres in which police shot at demonstrators from helicopters and um, were, were using bullets against almost entirely unarmed. I mean, if, there, if any of those people were armed, it was with uh, homemade, you know, sort of Molotov cocktail kinds of things. Mm. Um, but there's no clear indication that any of them were armed, even though, of course, that is what was claimed. And 20 people were killed. In this period in which we're seeing, you could say the offensive of the government against the indigenous population, as you've described, and in some ways a terrorization of that population on a racist sort of basis. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what role, you know, the Bolivian social movements had in propelling the change and what was and how it got to the place where the right wing felt that they had to step in and stop it. Well, the, the Bolivian social movements have always been one of the strongest set of social movements actually anywhere in the world. I mean, the, in the 1980s, the Bolivian Labor Federation, the Central Obrero Boliviana, was one of the most powerful, I mean, a small country, but one of the most powerful uh, workers' federations in the world. There were more, a greater percentage of the population belonged to it than, than just about anywhere else. Those that the, those social movements that started really resurged again in two thousand in two thousand with the the water war over against water privatization in Cochabamba hmm. and then the export of gas. Uh, through Chile to the United States in 2003, those movements were actually were, were propelled Evo Morales into power. And um, once he got into power and became an administrator of government, that's a, actually a very different role than running a social movement because he was a social movement leader of the coca growers himself. Um, his his party and his movement started to incorporate some of those social movement leaders into the government, and then over time, the ones that disagreed with them or argued with them about certain policies were increasingly marginalized, um, co-opted, and in some cases divided. So some, in some cases, an uh, old strategy, which is to set up a parallel movement with the same name. So <laughs> by the time we got to the elections of 2019, team, those movements had certainly, I mean, it's very hard to sustain social movement cycles over long periods of time. People, you know, need to go home and (laughs) run their lives. They can't be in the streets all the time. Um, So by 2019, those movements had really, in many ways, been gutted. The other point I think that's very important is that the policies that you mentioned that Abel Morales' government had put into place had grown the middle class in this country. So a lot of the people who had been poor and working class when Morales came into power were actually part of now a fairly precarious, definitely, but had a real, you know, real foot in the middle class for the first time. And though the middle class is less likely to rebel, they, a lot of people who I talked to who were in that category were very concerned about Abel Morales staying in power for a fourth term, which was against the Constitution and against the results 
results of a referendum in 2016. And that was actually more important to them in many ways, to many of those people, than um, the economic stability the month and growth that the month had, had brought, etc. So, Linda, this is all very clear. And in the time that we have left, I want to ask you, how you see this going forward? Anya says she's going to call for elections in 2020. Surely she's created a lot of enemies in this period of violence and consolidation of her government. How do you see the challenges for having an election and, you know, for moving forward beyond this period of, of very uncertain violence? Yeah, I mean, the elections have been called for May 3rd, um, and the parties are now in the final stage of uh, announcing their candidates. The right wing has divided. Um, in fact, if, they, if the, the center and the right had united against uh, Evo Morales in the October election, they would have won, and we wouldn't have had uh, so much of this mess that we've had in the last few months here. But um, the problem now is that Agnes has a very little credibility with a great large sector of the population. And there's a, the, the mass party is still the largest political force in the country. And although it's unlikely they'll win outright, they will probably be forced to go to a second round. If they were to win, there's real doubt among mass supporters that the right wing would not do another coup or an, a self-coup um, in order to keep Agnes or someone like her in power. So that's the concern, that, the, that these elections that have been called will not be fair. Linda, given everything that you've just said, including the fact that in the this these few months of unsettled violence, um, that you have a, a a weary mass movement and now a terrorized one from Moss, and on the other hand, the loss of credibility of Janine Anya's because she's governing in a way that she did not say that she was going to govern. How do you see you know the prospects for when the election and for any form of stability, or do you think that they might just call it off? It's really impossible to tell at this point, but it is clear that the Anya's government is not behaving as a transition government should, which is a government that simply focuses on elections. They've replaced a great number of the people in the Mas government. They've announced policy, fundamental policy changes. They've persecuted people and gone after people who were in the Mas government. So it's very unclear whether or not uh, these elections will be fair and whether or not the results will be respected. Well, I want to thank you so much for that. And we're going to revisit this after the election and hope that things remain safe, at least until that time or beyond that time as well. But thank you so much for offering us your insights, experience and analysis, Linda Farthing. You're welcome. Thank you. And Linda is a writer based in Bolivia. You can get her books, Avos Bolivia, Continuity and Change, and look for her writings in The Guardian, The Economist, Al Jazeera, America's Quarterly, The Nation, and NACLA. And I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.